I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. I'm here to have conversations, real, honest, authentic conversations, the kind we aren't supposed to have anymore. I interview anyone who interests me, anyone who I think you'll find interesting, who has a new or unique, uh, bold perspective from left to right to everywhere in between. I work independently in order to have the freedom to say what I believe and to speak to whoever I want. But with independence comes a lot of work and some insecurity. I rely on donors and patrons, so individuals, to support my work so I can continue to do what I do. Please consider becoming a subscriber on Patreon, patreon.com slash Megan Murphy. If you like the work I'm doing, if you're enjoying these interviews, or if you uh, just think that it's important that we have honest, authentic conversations outside the algorithm. On this episode, uh, you'll hear from Helen Pluckrose, who I spoke with back on January 5th. She is co-author of Cynical Theories and one of the masterminds behind the Grievance Studies hoax. Here is that interview. Uh, First of all, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to talking with you. Yeah, it's great to be here. (laughs) Um, I, I wonder, well, first of all, how has, (laughs) how has 2020 treated you? Um, uh, we've, um, obtained quite a lot of committed stalkers over, um, 2020. I, I seem to have managed to annoy almost everyone um which uh, with with our book which we which we kind of expected so uh, yeah <laughs> yeah i mean i sometimes i sort of have to conclude at this point that you're doing something right if you're aggravating everyone relatively equally i feel like i've been in that position for a while too and <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, who who is it going to be today? Is, is it going to be the conservatives, the social justice activists, the radical feminists, the trans activists, or occasionally, strangely, statisticians? But <laughs> oh, okay, interesting. I did, I wouldn't have predicted that one. No, <laughs> they can be very touchy. Um. So so you recently, of course, co-authored a book called cynical theories um why did you why did you choose that title okay because we think because the the sort of the core ideas that are driving a lot of what we call social justice or critical social justice at the moment are postmodern and postmodernism claims to be a skepticism towards meta narratives. So we argue it's not skepticism, it's cynicism. You know, it, it starts with a certain conclusion that everything is about power and discourse and, and cultural constructs and service of the powerful. And then it draws its conclusions from that. So we, um, coming from, as, as we do, the, the, the sort of new atheist moment, we think that there's a healthy scepticism that um, that belongs with liberalism, that belongs with science and reason, and that um, 
yeah, these current theories that we're seeing are not sceptical at all. They're they're very sure of themselves and they're cynical. Mm. I wonder if you can, I feel like we we talk about postmodernism a lot, but I'm not sure that people completely understand what that means. I wonder if you can explain what what is postmodernism. Well, this this is where people often get annoyed with me because it's such a huge thing. But we were really looking at some very very specific ideas, which have kind of got consolidated, simplified, and. Um, been brought into successive waves so this these are ideas about knowledge power and language this is the belief largely i mean foucault dominates um the the theory that we're seeing now in in post-colonial theory and critical race theory queer theory um it's all very foucauldian where we have this idea that knowledge is a construct of power the people in power decide what is true and what is not true. This is then legitimized and spoken by everybody as the truth. And then this way of speaking about things upholds um, oppressive power systems like white supremacy, like patriarchy, like cis normativity. Um, you know, the uh, the belief that everybody is the same gender as their reproductive system suggests they are um and that these that we need to uh, address the way people are using language so the the activism revolves around controlling the way people are allowed to speak about things and if we can make everybody speak into the right discourses then the world will become more socially just and this is discourse theory this is power knowledge this is this is Foucault. This is this is postmodernism. And how did postmodernism become mainstreamed? Oh, I think what happened, there was a, a very something happened in, in 1989. So by the middle of the 80s, the original postmodernists had kind of deconstructed themselves into non-existence. They'd they'd petered out. But then there arose a new wave of scholars who wanted to take some of these postmodern ideas, the ideas of language as a as constructing power knowledge and um, gender as a social construct, race as a social construct. Uh, but they had to accept some kind of objective reality or you can't do anything. So in 1989, we see uh, people like Mary Poovey writing um, feminism and deconstruction and she says we have we have to use some of these postmodern ideas to break down stereotypes but we can't say there's no objective truth or there's no such thing as women we can't advocate for women unless there is such a thing as women and then the same year we have Judith Butler who's saying the absolute opposite but for the same kind of reason she is uh, in gender trouble she's um She's writing, we need to use these post-structuralist ideas to break down the categories that are confining people into roles like man and woman, male and female, masculine and feminine. And um, so, and with bell hooks within um, critical race theory, postmodern blackness, I think that came out that year as well, where she's saying it's all very well for these, you know, white, um, rich, 
rich men to say that the subject doesn't exist, but black people are just starting to get their voice. So we have to look at um, constructs of power as a thing that objectively exists. And Kimberly Crenshaw's Mapping the Margins is the best um but best essay for this, because here she breaks down really clearly in, in lovely, clear language, which is one of the few good things about the critical race theorists. They do write clearly. And she says that we need to reject liberalism, but we need to apply um, contemporary politics to postmodern theory in order to um, recognize that power clusters around certain groups and to fight um, back against this in a form of identity politics. So her idea of intersectionality was born out of this, and it had some very good, um, it had a good start. I mean, I, I think, you know, giving up on um, liberalism isn't a great idea and, post, and going with postmodernism isn't. But she had a point where she said black women can face um, a step prejudicial stereotypes that black men don't face and that white women don't face. And so we need to be able to address that. But since this time, intersectionality has become more and more complex. It's taken in more and more identities. It's practically unusable. It generally um, results in, in what is often disparagingly referred to as the oppression Olympics, where um, people are sort of weighing their marginalised identities against each other and deciding who has the most right to speak. And this is when it became, I think, memeable and it became actionable because then activists could use it, they could understand it. There was something to do. We changed the way we talk about things and we fix things by talking about them in better ways. Mm. I mean, and yeah, I think you're right. Uh, initially, intersectionality seems, I mean, if you're looking at uh, Kimberly Crenshaw's um, initial approach, it seems inoffensive. Um, you know, I've, I've, I learned about intersectionality through women's studies, through feminism. And, you know, it makes sense to say, for example, that women are impacted by more than one thing they're not just their lives and experiences are not only shaped by being women they're also shaped by things like race and class mm. but you know it's turned into something much bigger than that which has really as far as i'm concerned derailed the feminist movement and social justice movements entirely and what happened there you know is it a problem with the theory at its root is there is it a problem with what Kimberly Crenshaw articulated or is it that people expanded on it and took it off took took it into you know um destructive or unproductive directions I think the problem is there in the roots for 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 three reasons because she explicitly rejected liberalism she didn't want there to be a universalism she said i am um uh, i am black has more political power than i am a person who happens to be black so we put identity and identity politics first she also wanted to go with postmodernism rather than um with empirical or materialist 
um, analyses. So I think it was bound to go haywire. There is There was the potential, I think, for very useful work there. So for Patricia Hill Collins, who's um, the other scholar um, most often associated with intersectionality, she spoke about these black stereotypes um, of um, African-American women of being sexually aggressive, um, which isn't a stereotype that applied to white women. So uh, uh, this, this could discourage the employment of black women in an office situation, and it wouldn't apply to white women. So there needed to be some way to get at this, to say this person is experiencing discrimination because she is both black and a woman. And so that, yes, that that idea is valuable, but it, I, I'm a staunch um, liberal, as, as you will know, if, if you've read cynical theories, I get, we get very evangelical about liberalism. <laughs> and we think that taking... Um, social significance out of identity is the way forwards, whereas the current theorists want to put significance back into it um, to a greater degree. And I don't think that works with human nature. Recognising each other as, as humans first, that different groups can certainly have different disadvantages, but that we're to overcome those. I'm not to assume that because you are a woman, you're going to be um, nurturing and interested in reality TV or something like this. You know, I I don't make assumptions on you because of your identity. That was the, the plan of liberalism. But this kind of strategic essentialism. Now, that, that's Gayatri Spivak who spoke of strategic essentialism, but it really kind of dominates everything now. There is a correct way to be black. There is a correct way to be um, a, a woman, a feminist, a trans ally, to be any of these kind of positions that we're supposed to be. And people are expected to fit within very narrow stereotypes. And I'm 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 particularly concerned about this idea that there's a way to be politically black or that there is is a, a particular way to be a feminist or a woman or somebody who seeks gender equality. Yeah. I mean, if you're if you're a leftist, um and I say this as somebody who engaged in this kind of discourse um, for a long time, you, you see, you treat liberal or liberalism sort of as a dirty word. Um, you know, like I spent a lot of time, you know, dissing liberals essentially. And it's, it's interesting, this rejection of liberalism. I, I, I think, I think when I was, was critical or thought I was being critical of liberals or of liberalism, um, I was being critical of individualism and, a, and an individualist approach versus a collective approach. Um, and I now see that as problematic because I, I think that individual rights and freedom are, are really important as well as things like freedom of speech and freedom of expression. But when, you know, and I'll often see, you know, I, I'm very critical of the left now. 
and mm-hmm. I'll say something about something critical about the left and inevitably somebody will jump into the comments and say, this isn't the left, these are liberals. <laughs> so it's sort of, it's sort of confusing. And, it, you know, I guess I'd like you to explain what, what it means to be a liberal when you're talking about liberalism, what do you mean? Okay, so yeah, this word, it's particularly difficult because, you know, in America, it's often um, used by conservatives to just mean left. In Australia, it's understood to mean right. But when we're talking about um, feminisms or, um, or ethics, then I think we have sort of you I as what I remember from from your work from the conversations that we had um on Twitter was that often when you were criticizing what you called libfems um you were criticizing what I would call social justice mm-hmm. um activists so I see a difference here between the materialist feminists now that there's there's a lot of um sort of branches of these the radical feminists the gender critical feminists the socialist feminists the materialists um but these are all um feminists who believe in women as a class and a class that are disadvantaged and they're interested in empirical data material reality government law politics graspable things so this has been the strongest second wave stream of academic feminism which dominated um and you know initiated women's studies now as women's studies has become gender studies this um indicates the takeover of what we could call the postmodern left or the social justice left the queer theory left so this is a different um uh, focus altogether. They do not believe that women are a class of people who are defined by a reproductive system and oppressed because of that um, that system. They they believe that everything is um, so is constructed in the service of of power, and w- that we need to break down those categories, even the categories of men and women, as defined by biological um, functions. So we've got these social justice, intersectional, trans activist feminists. Then we have the gender critical feminists. They uh, are constantly um, arguing with each other, with the uh, trans activists accusing the gender critical feminists of being transphobes and the uh, gender critical feminists often accusing them of being misogynists. And then I would say there are the liberal feminists who don't fall into either camp. So the liberal feminists like like me are the people who believe that society is actually pretty good already, but the problem was that it, it didn't give everybody access to everything. So my mother um, was a second wave liberal feminist and she... Um, her activism involved getting Lloyds Bank to uh, open up accountancy exams um, to women, which um, they didn't do at that time, and to be able to get a mortgage without a male guarantor. So this was the kind of liberal approach. They don't want a revolution, 
don't want to, to change the system. We just want to have equal access to it. So the materialist feminists tend to be critical of us because we're not um, seeing we are individualistic. We're not see, looking at women as a class um, opposed to men as a class and thinking in a collective way at which um, often radical feminists feel is necessary to address um, injustices. And we're opposed by those coming from the critical social justice um, tradition, really e explicitly, particularly in critical race theory, um, and in which it sort of underlies intersectionality because we're again we're not revolutionary we don't want to turn everything upside down we want incremental progress we want there to be less differentiation between different groups and for there to be more humanism more universalism and more individualism so they they don't like that either so I I often see the social justice left will will often um, refer to me as a turf because I will point out that women's spaces um, need to be protected in in certain cases, especially when it comes to safety, like in prisons, and women um, need to be protected. But then I will get accused of being um, a social justice. Um, warrior because I believe that trans people are also a marginalized group who face quite a lot of hostility and prejudice as they go about their lives generally sort of not bothering anybody and this is where people will accuse liberals like me of being happy with the status quo now I'm, I'm not happy with the status quo I think it's a, a horrendous mess at the moment but I I do want to reform rather than revolutionize society. Mm -hmm. That that was a really helpful explanation, actually. Um, I think, I mean, when I started out writing about feminism, as I said, I spent a lot of time criticizing liberals and liberal feminists, and that sort of, um, that moved into a criticism of third wave feminism. So mm. I think the focus of my work became critical of third wave feminists. And then those two, those two categories, liberal feminist and third wave feminist, which, which would mean essentially the, the queer theory, the gender theory, um, the social justice warrior version of feminism. Um, mm. Those two categories sort of got, um, mixed up together um so i think that it's it's it, it is important to differentiate between those those different categories um i i know that um i, I mean from from reading your book a, a major aspect of of postmodernism and the impact of postmodernism on politics today on discourse social justice activism has been this now rather widespread belief that words don't mean anything. Um, you know, words have no concrete material meaning. So essentially a word could mean anything at all. I mean, it could mean nothing or it could mean everything, depending on who is using the word. Um, and... I you 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 write about the way that this is rooted in postmodern theory, namely 
um, Derrida's work. So I wonder, I wonder if you can talk a bit about that, that route and, and how that's impacted um, social justice discourse today. This is where we get a really strange mix at the moment because we see within the queer theorists the idea, the very Derridean idea, and also in some of the post-colonial theorists, that language really doesn't mean anything. Whatever um, the speaker meant is no more authoritative than the interpretation of the hearer. So... Um, <laughs> So, so that that has has continued. We will hear often that um, intention doesn't matter; it's impact. So, we will hear, for example, that if I compliment um, a black speaker on um, giving an excellent speech, she could interpret that as me being surprised that she could give an excellent speech because I didn't believe black people could do that. So then, I it wouldn't matter that I what I intended, but what would matter would be the impact on her. So we see this kind of death of the author thing continue into the, the current day where we, yeah, we rename words, we um, interpret things. We, there isn't an expectation that you're necessarily going to answer what has been said to you. It's as though there's a, a web of discourses around everything. And if you use one or two um, trigger words, which are often referred to as dog whistles, then uh, people will just fill in the whole puzzle and they can respond to anything else within that whole zone. So it, you are just pigeonholed within this belief system because of a certain word you've used and, and what that's understood to mean. But that's the queer theory um, impact on things. But when we have um, the critical race theory um, and this sort of intersectional approach, then we find and that this kind of what we're calling that the third stage, the reified form where everything has become very concrete and sure of itself. Then we get mantras like trans women are women, trans women are women, trans women are women. We'll see this written over and over again in a tweet. And there is this idea that this is actually helping. This is making this a dominant discourse. And if everybody can say this, then it will make a society in which this will actually create this reality. So it was particularly revealing when J.K. Rowling recently wrote a great long explanation of her... Um, position why she had said that she thinks women need to be able to talk about their experiences as women in a biological sense and that this doesn't mean that she holds any hostility towards trans people at all and she she made a long and detailed argument now the response to this from a lot of the actors um from harry potter and from various other people was not to engage with that argument at all but to recite that mantra what the, the problem was understood that she was speaking into a discourse that hurts trans people by not recognising them as women. And so that needed to be counteracted very, very quickly by trying to punish her, trying to cancel her, which isn't possible because too many people love her work, but to, to really denigrate her as a terrible person, the things that are, are being read into her work now because of this and to counteract it with that mantra trans women are women to just try to 
to restore the right balance. So we think, um, Jim, uh, James, Lindsay and I, when we're talking about this, we, we think we're in a kind of a, a stage of late postmodernism, which is a battle of narratives, because we see this on the right as well. We see this with, with characters like Donald Trump. You know, it doesn't matter that um, he said something, he is on film saying something, you can show him himself on film saying it, he will still deny that he ever said it, his followers will deny that he ever said it it's, it's as though it doesn't matter what is real anymore, what matters is the narrative that you can build around whatever you want to achieve and then these narratives uh, do war with each other, and one of them has to win. Now, this is in opposition to liberalism, the marketplace of ideas, where we're actually having arguments with each other. We should be having debates. We should be responding to what each other is saying. Maybe there can be a compromise in some cases. Maybe we can shift someone slightly in some cases. This is, I, I think, the aim of a secular liberal democracy. But what we have now, and I think social media is a great deal to do with this, is warring, warring narratives where truth is not really a consideration for any party. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, and the trans women are women mantra is a really good example of this. Um, I, I've, of course, experienced this many times. I mean, you anything that you say that's critical of um, trans activism or trans activist narratives or gender identity ideology, or even just to speak about protecting women's spaces and women's sex-based rights, as you say, the response will just be, will often just be trans women are women, as though that's what the debate mm. is. You know, they won't actually respond to, you know, J.K. JK Rowling didn't say anything about whether or not trans women are women. Um, I mean, it should be acceptable to talk about biological sex and to acknowledge that people do have biological sex and that you can't change biological sex. But that's not what she was talking about. She was talking mm -hmm. about protecting women and girls. She was talking about domestic violence, violence against women, um, women's spaces, and, and her concerns around the impacts of gender identity ideology and this this legislation and these policies which allow biological males to access women's spaces. And, you know, it's impossible. We can't even have a conversation. So we're not we're not talking to one another. And I found it completely impossible to talk about gender identity, gender identity ideology women's rights with those on the other side of the debate. Um, you know, yeah. so the, the ones who are repeating trans women or women call them trans activists or gender, gender activists, gender theorists, whatever. But I mean, I, I sort of wonder if that, if that talking past one another is intentional. Do people realize that they're intentionally avoiding having a real conversation i i i think that there is an an element of this because one of of the projects that, that i'm hoping to get to soon is i want to get conversations going between gender critical feminists who recognize that trans people um often have a harder lot in life um than a lot of other people and 
um, that this matters, and a trans activist who recognises that women's sports and spaces do need protecting. Women being concerned about this are not being hateful. They, um, there are biological differences. And if like, we can get reasonable people to be having a conversation, then we are getting closer to actually finding a solution because this shouldn't be a zero-sum game. It shouldn't be that we can either protect um, biological women or we can protect trans people. We, we should be able to accept that trans people can, for the most part, just go about their lives as feels right to them without bothering without having been bothered or, or harassed by anybody at all, but that they can't straightforwardly be accepted as women in every situation for reasons of safety and fairness. If a conversation can happen, then we could move forward. But at the moment, we can't. And the problem, I find, isn't always entirely on the trans activist side. Often, often it is. That, yes, we're just shut down with... Uh, trans women are women but there's also I think a lot of gender critical feminists who don't want to um, look at the problem as it actually is either they they will uh, kind of feed the trans activism into a men's rights activism and consider it a manifestation of the patriarchy trying to um, take over the very identity of of women and if they are calling trans activists um, misogynists and um, men's rights activists, this isn't going to get through to a trans activist who believes herself to be su supporting a valuable group, uh, a vulnerable group, rather. Which that they, they, people need to address what the other person actually believes. They need. We need trans activists to accept that gender critical feminists don't hate trans people and gender critical feminists to accept that um, trans people are not misogynists, you know, so it's. Um... Right. I mean, I think that you're right that there I mean, there can't be a blanket approach to discourse because in some cases, I mean, I've interacted with trans activists and feminists and the general public and people who aren't engaged with this issue at all more than probably almost anyone. And, <laughs> and it's true that, you know, <laughs> um, you know, some, uh, some trans activists do behave like hateful misogynists and say disgusting things about women and threaten me and so on and so forth. Some people think that they're doing the right thing. Some people mm. think that they're protecting a marginalized group. Um, some people don't understand the issue at all and don't understand why it matters to accept self-identified trans women as women they're like why mm. not like live and let live and of course you know i would also say live and let live if we weren't talking about legislation and policy um you know i don't particularly care mm. how somebody wants to dress or live their life privately mm. but uh, what i have encountered over and over and over again is a refusal to engage in debate so a lot of mm. people have tried to and i'm i want to debate i like to debate i want to defend my positions i like having conversations even when there's conflict and disagreement i really want to clarify my concerns and I want to hear from other people like I want us to stop pa talking past each other 
but the the trans activists will not engage in debate. The amount of people who have tried to organize. So I, I think that we're talking about online conversations a lot of times. And, and I agree, it doesn't really go anywhere. If you're yelling, you know, misogynist at somebody and they're yelling turf at you, it's not going to go anywhere. Um, I, but I see that in, in your approach. I've, I've, um, I've looked at your feminism um, for some years and I, I see you coming from a materialist um, position. I, that they you know, this position, it values dialectic. So what you can nearly always get um materialist feminists or marxists uh people from this kind of range of thought to have conversations because they believe and liberals because they believe that's how we resolve things but if you are a believer in this idea that dominant discourses are literally hurting people literally erasing people com- making people commit suicide, creating hostile environments in which people are being murdered, then you're not going to get a debate. You're going to get a form of activism which involves trying to shut down and punish people for expressing beliefs which they, they believe to be harmful. So this is why I find myself now, even though I am, um, I think I, I, I'm, I'm in neither, I don't agree with the queer theorists, um, trans activists of of that worst kind um, almost at all. And I often disagree with the gender critical feminists on many issues. But I find myself in this position where we're trying to get this conversation um, going. It, It just isn't going to happen. And I'm... I'm finding that I'm having to um, defend uh, gender-critical feminists much more because what seems to be happening on a cultural level is that the um, social justice activists, the trans activists of that kind, are winning. Mm -hmm. So here in the UK, we have had um, a man who posted a um, a limerick which... um, um, was rude about um, uh, whether a trans woman was really a woman. I I think I don't know what it, it was about, but anyway, it was it was considered transphobic, and the police called him, uh, and they said we just wanted to check your thinking. Um, now we we've had you know a woman. Um, she wasn't arrested, but because she was called in, if, if she had not gone to the station to discuss her tweets. Um, about gender identity, she would have been arrested. So we're having police getting involved in people's beliefs about what sex is and what gender is. Now, that that really worries me. And, and I'm finding in the UK that there is a, a, a really big pushback rising about this. Now, our, our most popular article of 2020 was by Petra uh, Buskins, which was an apology to J.K. Rowling. It's a defense of a liberal gender critical position. Now, normally, you know, we have a five times larger American audience um, than English, but the UK, that, that absolutely dominated that piece. We have got a really strong gender critical movement happening in the UK, and I, I think that they're going to be 
some I think they're going to have success in pushing it back and I intend to help them um but um I also unfortunately seem to annoy a lot of them at the same time so um many of them aren't talking to me <laughs> <laughs> well so there's a problem there right <laughs> so there's a problem in feminism wherein you know we've we've faced this this horrible challenge of of trying to speak about women's sex-based rights and to speak about our concerns about um, gender identity ideology. And we've been shut down and censored and threatened and vilified and so on and so forth. Um, And, you know, within that period of time, I've, I've responded by becoming a major defender of free speech which I hadn't been so much in the past and it's unfortunate that you know you 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 learn these things through experience but um but many many feminists have not come around to that position so while on one hand they'll complain of being silent and I get attacked now because I've started to speak out in defense of of all speech of free speech period um and and because I've I've become more of a liberal, essentially, you know, I've embraced liberalism, um, whereas in the past, you know, I've I've always been on the left. I've identified as a Marxist or a socialist. Um, and, you know, my positions around the economy and social safety net still remain the same. But I've, I've changed my mind about, you know. I don't want to go too, too into detail about it, but the idea of, you know, revolutionizing society as a whole. Um, And I, you know, so a lot of those feminists who would otherwise complain about the silencing of women in this context still have not come around to a position of defending free speech. So they still don't want to engage with people who they see as political enemies because those people are bad and it in it in it and just by engaging it it gives um uh you know it 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 makes it makes those other positions which are bad positions or dangerous positions it it, it legitimizes those p- positions just to engage you know that's part of the reason why i think that trans activists won't engage with me because you know a, a, a main thing that they want to convey is that what i'm saying isn't legitimate it's not rational it's hateful which is not true of course but if they engaged with me they would have to acknowledge that what i was saying was not hateful and that i do have valid and rational concerns but i feel frustrated that so many feminists not all feminists but you know you always have to say not all but a lot of feminists will still oppose free speech from from people that they disagree with or people that they view as enemies people who are allies while at the same time complaining that they're being silenced and and wanting free speech for themselves and i find it very frustrating i i i also find it extremely frustrating because i um I I really want for it to be a priority for, you know, my group that that I'm setting up my contacts to try to defend gender-critical feminists' right to defend women's sex-based rights. But I... I, I get a lot of hostility because I myself am not a gender critical feminist. The idea that I can support somebody's right to make this argument and even think that we need people making this argument without myself 
wanting to get into um, a particular side of the argument, it doesn't go down very well. So I, a ridiculous thing that uh, three days of people yelling at me because I said I thought that the word cis um, had some utility. Now, a lot of the feminists who say that their freedom of speech is being denied if they're expected to use certain gender pronouns um, were very willing to try to ban um, the word cis and to, um, to really were very illiberal uh, about it. And I ended up getting into this um, huge debate about how precisely um, gender neutral toilets could work and I don't I don't know how they could work this isn't my my area of expertise this is what these feminists were focusing on how to keep these spaces safe I want to support their right to be able to make those arguments I don't want to actually become um, a part of their team and make the arguments. I, I just want them to be able to make them. So I, I think this is where I end up annoying everybody because I, I think the general feeling from a lot of people who feel very strongly about anything is illiberal. If they think an idea is very bad, they think that it should be shut down, that the people who hold it should be vilified or punished and and trying to sort of say well no um you can think this person is really really wrong and you can say that they're really really wrong but perhaps don't get them fired don't um threaten to rape or murder them or um you know i you know i've, I've seen the website to, don't try to, to get their book banned don't try to get their event shut down yeah try you know just trying to to get people to to speak to each other is really very, very difficult. And I, I think I, I was very, very pleased to hear you say that you have become more liberal in this regard, because I think I, I'm probably closer to where you are now. I'm economically um, more leftist while sort of philosophically more liberal, which is a sort of centrist position, I suppose, because it's it's accessible to both both sides it's an individualist um freedom and, and this is what i i think we need i i managed to find one um trans woman who was willing to have a um a reasoned debate um about this and unfortunately i i, I was i was quite excited because I, I i keep looking for people who will actually enter into the conversation with assuming the other person has good motivations and being prepared to listen to their concerns. Mm. And this young woman, I, she's a trans woman, I, but I, I will call her a young woman. She was, um, she was willing to do this. And then I discovered that her mental health wasn't strong enough for me to put her in a position where she would be likely to get such a backlash. And I haven't been able to find anybody. So if you can find me people, anybody out there can find me liberal minded, um, gender critical feminists or trans activists who are willing to come together and have these conversations dealing with what each other is actually saying, assuming that the other isn't a hateful monster, that they, they're advocating for different groups, but this isn't a zero-sum game. There, there can be a solution here.
<laughs> yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I really, I have tried and I was contacted by the monk debates in the summer or late spring of this year because they wanted to have a debate around um, trans activism and and women and you know the impact on women's rights and i said of course i would do that and they were unable to find any person to debate me they not not a you know not a trans woman not an academic who's supportive of gender identity ideology not any you know i subject i su suggested a whole list of names of people that they could contact in law and academia and activism writers and no one would do it. So if there are people out there who are willing to engage in a debate, then I would like to know also. And this is, like I said, this has happened to me more than once. You know, I, when I was in New Zealand, they tried to organize a debate on, on the news channel and they couldn't find anyone to debate me. So they just did an interview with me, which I really enjoyed. I mean, I was happy to have the opportunity to share my views as always. But it's very strange to me that nobody will even sit in a room with me to, to you know, to talk with me because I'm not that I, bad. <laughs> I, I have exactly I don't think I have anyway. a problem. I, I, I can't, you know, I don't have evidence that um, it's, it's specifically because of me, but I, I was invited to be on a panel about intersectional feminism, and then everybody else on the panel suddenly dropped out for one reason or another. The same thing <laughs> happened when I was supposed to be on a panel about um, whether we need to decolonize the curriculum. The two people arguing that we do suddenly dis discovered they had other things. I was accepted to, to speak, to take part at a symposium about whether we need to decolonize STEM. And then somebody Googled me and I was disinvited. That's the only time I've really had over evidence. I was disinvited. I was going to use the work of Miranda. I don't know if you, you know her. She is one of my favorite um, materialist feminist post-colonial scholars. And she she argues that the whole idea that science and reason are white masculine things are racist and sexist. And I love her. And I was going to use her work to argue against this whole decolonized STEM thing. And apparently arguing this would make the other contributors unsafe. Right. Say saying that science doesn't belong to white people. Um is unsafe it's dangerous in some way to the to the mental well-being of other people it's a ridiculous situation we find ourselves in yeah it really is I, and i i wanted to talk to you about that that concept actually to move on from the whole gender identity thing decolonization so we hear this all the time i remember you know when i was doing so i have a i have a ba in in women's studies and and I have a master's degree in gender, sexuality, and women's studies, and that's because the department changed names partway through my degree and became gender, sexuality, mm -hmm. and women's studies instead of just women's studies. But when I was doing my master's degree, you know, we had textbooks literally called, like, decolonize this. Um, and this was, like, you know, 10 years ago. So things mm -hmm. have gotten even more intense 
now yeah. <laughs> this kind of language but you know like you'll see all the time like i was i actually looked yesterday i looked up the word decolonize on twitter just to, to find examples of how it was being used and i've i mean i've been seeing this for years but you know so there's stuff like there's like decolonize your mind decolonize free market capitalism decolonize global health decolonize economics decolonize yourself decolonize math um decolonize sex work of course that one has been around forever um i saw you know decolonize your diet uh mm -hmm. i saw a tweet that said <laughs> um decolonize tarot astrology numerology um and other esoteric practices um i saw one that said one of the most powerful ways we can decolonize goal setting is by emphasizing the importance of celebration i mean it's just it's literally everywhere decolonized feminism of course what does this mean <laughs> okay so you what you often hear on the academic level is diversification isn't decolonization and so what this means is that the the diversification approach means that that we include more scholars of different kinds if we're if we're diversifying the curriculum we make sure that not all of the books in an english literature uh, course are written by um, white men so that's the diversification but this is considered a problem by the decolonial scholars because that's just adding um sort of uh, token uh, sort of women and black people to a system. So when they want to decolonize things, they want to change the way that we're thinking. So the, this whole kind of the the idea of, of having colonized um, time and space itself, that all of these things like maths, like literacy even, like being on time, like being polite, these are all white Western masculine constructs. And the whole sort of decolonize movement is about unthinking um, all of the um, sort of... Uh, the, the epistemology, that the ways of, of obtaining knowledge that they believe belongs to white Western men. Now, this is completely ahistorical. We, we know that um, Europe lagged behind um, Asia um, considerably with the development of science and maths. We know this. For, for centuries it did. We know that a lot of the uh, first doctors, the what the herbalists were women so the idea that medicine that that science that that maths that even literacy um is white and western is, is really very racist and sexist so when you hear someone say we need to decolonize we mean we need to stop thinking in a western way about something so one of the essays that i included in in cynical theories which my twitter followers like to tease me about is the um a, an essay about why we don't appreciate why france and america um doesn't have a great a greater appreciation of big black butts and this is apparently a failure to decolonize their mindset and to appreciate twerking 
um, on the, the a level of other kinds of artistic endeavor. So it's, um, <laughs> I, I think as well that there's a kind of competition because there's this sort of excitement where people feel like they're on the verge of discovering all the things that have been colonized and we haven't even realized it and they can point it out. And that, yes, that can be maths, that can be, that can be science, that can be buttocks for god's sake it's it's ridiculous goal setting (laughs) tarot (laughs) i i mean it's interesting because i feel like so 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 you wrote you and and james wrote about critical race theory in the book of course and critical race theory really dominates social justice activism and discourse today Mm. um and I mean, one of, as, as far as I can tell, one of the most glaring weaknesses in critical race theory is that proponents don't seem to realize that their approach to these conversations about race, which they inject into everything else, is totally Americentric. So, you know, they approach race as though the entire globe is America and shares America's history and demographics, which I, you know, see, you know, one could call that like a colonizer approach. Mm. Yeah, I I mean, this is, um, I I was looking at at a letter that, um, that somebody had written and it was so clearly it, it was speaking in a British context, but it, it included among oppressed people, the indigenous, um, by it, it spoke of BIPOC, you know, which is black indigenous and people of color. Now, indigenous Britons are white. They're like Celts or Anglo-Saxons or, or whatever they are. But this idea that you can just put a concept like BIPOC, which belongs to a, a country which <laughs> has had settlers and which has black people and other people of different colours there, and you can just sort of apply it, put that framework over a different country, is ridiculous. We have a different system here. So, I mean, we um, in the UK, we, we have a great amount of post-colonial guilt so, you know, we colonized a third of the planet, um, exploited and starved millions of people. So this is something that um, post-colonial scholars and critical race theorists, this is something that can, that can be addressed. What is the aftermath of this? What, how is this working economically? Um, is that are there still unfair advantages on a global level? Yes, clearly it seems that there are, but we can't put uh, a critical race theory which works very much on there having been a white dominant class and a black subordinated class directly on top of the UK. It uh, it doesn't work like this. I heard a um, black Brit. Uh, say to a South Asian Brit that um, she needed to recognize her anti-blackness because this is in an American context where African-Americans are seen as the least um, privileged group while South um, Asian Americans are um, financially more successful and therefore seen sometimes as white adjacent. Now here in the UK, 
I don't think that that's um, the same kind of balance we had when the Windrush generation came over. They were, for the first, for one thing, predominantly Christian, and they were here for longer. And then we had a wave of South Asian um, immigrants coming in the 80s and 90s. So I, when I see racism in here in London, it seems to be much more related to anti-Muslim bigotry and aimed at South Asian people than it does at black Brits. But a lot of the theorists here are still trying to work on this assumption that black people are the descendants of slaves um, as, as in the same way that it, it works in the US and mm-hmm. it, it doesn't yeah. work. <laughs> I mean, I've observed the same thing both in the UK and in Canada where we sort of try to take American politics, history uh, approach to, to race in particular and apply it to ourselves in ways that don't really make sense and therefore aren't productive. Why do you think that people do that? You know, why is it preferable to take these American narratives around race and apply them to places like the UK or, you know, for me, I've observed this happening in Vancouver um, when when it doesn't, when it's not going to be effective in terms of dealing with the actual racism that's going on or the actual inequity that's going on, you know, it would be better to understand the specific histories, circumstances, demographics, um, inequality, if it exists, uh, you know, in these places rather than simply to repeat mantras that came from American social justice activists. Well, there you go, thinking like a materialist feminist again. So, <laughs> oops. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, that there are very good scholars. After we did our our probe and, and sent a lot of ridiculous papers, some feminist geographers got in touch with us and um, told us they'd been concerned about the same journal that, Um, we had sent a ridiculous paper to and the problem with getting materialist um, scholarship out there I I think what they were looking at was the access to to medical care for women in some parts of South Asia so their work was really rigorous and 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 scholarly and, and and it needed to be to be respected, but we've got, it's much, much simpler and much more satisfying to take on this kind of, this meme version, this Robin D'Angelo version. I mean, she can be read and understood by a 10-year-old and you can then take on this simplistic narrative, you can apply it to everything. There's something very sort of satisfying and I'm virtuous about doing that. And I, I think that this brings, particularly for young idealistic people, this idea of looking for evidence of, say, racism. Um, one of the, the tenets is racism. It, the question is not, um, did racism take place, but how did racism manifest in that situation? Once you've found it, you are correct. So this is a, a game. It's a language game. And it's about unpicking words. And there's a, a, a satisfaction that I, I believe um, 
sort of satisfies similar needs to those uh, satisfied by conventional religions. You know, if you can recite the creeds, you can see this sort of simple um, concept of the world. There's the good and the evil. There's the, the, the depravity, but the way to, to overcome it, to achieve grace. Uh, there's, there's something, I think, psychologically very satisfying in these kind of um, theories which don't apply to doing the rigorous um, scholarship that would actually help us discover important things like why uh, do African-American women die in childbirth so much more often even when um, you know, um, controlling for class and other health issues? There's, we don't need some people to be saying white supremacy. We need people to be doing rigorous scholarship and saving lives. So... I, I just don't think it's as much fun but, um, doing things the hard way. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're right. And ex that you're exactly right that the approach is to that specific issue that you brought up and many others is to just say, you know, health care is a white supremacist institution or something like that. Or it's because, you know, America is a white supremacist country, but that's just not helpful. And I think, you know, it it has to be that it's just satisfying for the person saying it to say it. And, you know, it, of course, makes them feel like they're a good person instead of a, a bad person. And they can virtue signal to their tribe that they're in the right instead of in the wrong yeah, I, I I think there is that satisfaction, and I I think it's important to to be charitable. I don't always manage this, but to to you know to to yeah, you know, I I think that a large number of people really believe this. They believe that the whole idea of woke is um, to have that critical consciousness, to have become aware of these invisible systems of power and privilege that most people can't see. And so there's something really quite exciting about having become woke and being able to see things and to start to make things better. So I think if you're when we're approaching people who are, are, are taking this kind of approach, we need to think of them as genuinely trying to make the world a better place, but doing so naively and simplistically. I don't think we can, it's, it's, it's easy at all to get through to somebody who's completely embedded in that mindset, but we can get through to people who are, are sympathetic to it, but aren't fully committed. And that's, I think, what I'm, I'm aiming to do at the moment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, do you think that... Do you think that liberalism has sort of been marginalized in in the West? I think it's seen by the um, social justice people as as kind of naive, as uh, this idea that we can, um, you know, have a marketplace of ideas and value, science and reason, and you know, in a, in a way that that there was a certain naivety um, to the Enlightenment. You know, it, when that arose, there was a need for more complexity, for for asking more questions, for realizing things aren't quite that simple. So, I think liberalism has taken a knocking from critical social justice. So, the Marxists have always been 
um, critical of it. They they see it in, mostly in terms of of markets and a necessary step, but one that needs to be got over to get to a socialist society. And the conservatives see liberal sort of aim for progress as usually trying to fix things that don't need fixing. So I, I think liberals always have an uphill battle sort of fighting p- different impulses on, on different sides. But I think it just works. It works so well that I think it will be ultimately um, successful. But it, it's under sort of a more serious threat right now than I than I think it has been for a good sort of 60 or 70 years. Mm-hmm. And do you think that that is in part because of um, the of academia and sort of changes within academia in terms of <clears throat> approach, theory, teaching? I I don't know with the the whole sort of chicken and egg thing. I I don't know whether there's, there's a feedback loop going on, and I think social media. And the way that we now communicate and form tribes has, is a huge part of why our discourse has simplified and memified to the extent that it has. And I, I suspect that academia is reflecting that rather than causing it. But that feedback loop that that, it, that goes on between the online activists and the, the scholars is um it's is something that needs interrupting if if we can i i think we need to to try and make it it cool to actually you know value evidence and reason again um at the moment even socially conservative ideas are are seeming attractive to to certain people which really hasn't been a thing i mean we saw the um the whole appeal of jordan peterson for example, now he he really did have some quite socially conservative ideas about men and women um, gender roles, and this appealed to a lot of people that I wouldn't have thought it would appeal to because it was, I think, something an, an a, a nice narrative, something that seemed positive. It wasn't the far right um, sort of sexism, and it wasn't the sort of left self flagellation. And so, you know, I'm, I'm worried that we're seeing a shift towards a right which is socially conservative and which could actually roll back um, some of the successes that we have made for gay and lesbian rights, for women's reproductive freedom, if the right begins to seem more reasonable and more liberal than the left Mm-hmm, which it is lately. So I think that's a fair concern for sure. Um, I'll let you go. I've taken up a lot of your time. Before we, we sign off, I wonder if you can tell me about your new um, organization, Counterweight. Ah, yeah, thank you. So in a couple of weeks, hopefully, we will be all, we'll be launching um, Counterweight. And it's an organization in which we help individuals. Come, You come to us, we have caseworkers, we aim to connect people having a specific problem with the specific resources and advice they need. It's not all because so many um, organizations that are out there are for academics or for people who are already quite good at making and defending arguments. Um, we're for people who aren't who aren't maybe so confident in doing that. So 
yeah, Counterweight coming in a couple of weeks. It's a caseworker system. We're forming organizations. We're producing educational resources. And we just want to make it easier for the average person to push it back in their own organization. Great. That sounds awesome. I'm really excited. Um, and uh, and your book uh, that you co-authored with James Lindsay is Cynical Theories, of course. And I'm assuming that people can find it everywhere they find books. Mm-hmm. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, awesome. It was really great to talk with you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for your time. It was lovely to meet you properly, Megan. <laughs> you too. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode and are enjoying the other interviews and the content we're producing, please do consider becoming a patron. Just head over to patreon.com slash Megan Murphy and sign up. Five, ten, twenty-five bucks a month. It all helps. We rely entirely on supporters and donors like you to keep doing this work. Thank you so much. We'll catch you next time on The Same Drugs with Megan Murphy.